0: Hey, everyone. Thanks for checking out the Human Performance Outliers podcast. In case you haven't noticed, we are now up on Patreon. You can find us at patreon.com backslash HPOPodcast. You can also just click on the link in the podcast notes and it'll take you right to our page. For the listeners that have already joined us, thank you so much. Your support is greatly appreciated. Uh, We have some pretty cool goodies that we're rolling out for the Patreon supporters, including a front-of-the-line Q&A, some early podcast release options, as well as the chance to even join the show. So please consider checking out that page if you haven't yet. Also, if you do listen to us on a podcast hosting site, if you have the option, please consider subscribing. By subscribing, you'll get the most up-to-date episode as soon as it's released. Thank you very much, and enjoy the show.
1: Dr. Wrigley, thanks for coming on, man.
0: Yeah, man. Love to see you, Doc.
1: So let let us uh, for those who don't know much about you, tell us a little bit about who you are. I know I know you had a pretty dramatic weight loss. I know you practice, I think, functional medicine. I know you have a focus focus on uh, hormones, and, and and currently you're employing, uh, you know, some dietary strategy in that. So can you talk just a little quick five minute summary about what's going on?
2: Yeah, let me give you uh, let me give you a little brief history of my past. I um I. I ventured into medicine at Chapel Hill in North Carolina and got very discouraged with um, the what I would call the disease management system of healthcare, and it led me on a journey that led to uh, spending a few years in Southeast Asia and looking at some um, uh, some of the other models of how healthcare was practiced, which I got fascinated with. And so I began to um, look at uh yeah i guess what you would call more of an alternative approach to health care but uh, let's see are you guys there i'm seeing like still pictures
1: yeah i can hear you yeah okay
2: good so anyway um long story short is you know in practicing health care for the last 23 years which my specialty has been in female hormonal chemistry and and, and to some extent men too but um you know, uh, yeah, I, I, I let myself get way out of control and gained a, a lot of weight that I wasn't even aware of. And um, I, I decided to uh, you know, look into this and, and it led me down the same pathway that I think that we're all going now of this idea of getting... Uh, Insulin resistance and the overconsumption of carbohydrate food and the garbage that it is and the low fat stuff. And so, you know, I turned this around for myself and it, it gave me uh, kind of an, uh, the decision to, I wanted to mirror now the two things that I do best. One is to understand this uh, metabolic disease and weight loss picture and then mirror that to the frustration that a lot of women go through in the peri and post-menopausal years where what they used to be able to do in the past to lose weight no longer is uh, working for them at all. So that's kind of how I got here, and now that's what the primary basis of my practice is now.
1: And so, I mean, I know you, <laughs> you've you got a lot of things that you're, you're becoming passionate about, and I know you wanted to talk about. I know you asked if if I could, if I could speak the truth or something, and I I said, of course, man, let's hear what you got. But hey, let me ask you, just because, you know, we try to keep, you know, keep this, this, this podcast to get as much information out there as possible and and sort of utilize some of the knowledge from people that they might have expertise in, you know. And so one thing uh, with regard to female hormone, because that's what you say, you, you sort of are kind of your main focus. Can you talk to us about I mean, it's gone back and forth over the years. Should they take hormones? Should they not take hormones? Which hormones are right? Are they bioidentical? Are they, you know, the synthetic ones? There's so much sort of confusion out there for, you know, even in the medical community. And certainly, I mean, I I feel sorry for the women that are trying to deal with this. I mean, what is a, uh, is there any kind of consensus out there as to what they should be doing, particularly with regards to things like perimenopausal care? Uh, and, 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 I think that's the main issue that probably most people want to hear about. I mean, obviously there's just birth control and some of that stuff, but what is your strategy? What are the main issues surrounding that? And where are the, where are the big problems and some of the myths that we, that we've sort of, sort of come into over the last, you know, several decades with this stuff?
2: Right. Well, okay. So we start with the fact that, um, you know, as, as women enter this perimenopausal picture, and their ovaries begin to decline in producing certain hormones, there's a, there's a dramatic shift that happens first where the, 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 these two primary hormones of progesterone and estrogen that are, and they are, they, they want to play a symphony together and, and they, they balance and antagonize each other. And so what happens first is that the progesterone levels begin to drop much quicker in perimenopausal when estrogen levels remain stable. And so it puts women into, the ratio of those two things moving apart puts them into what we would call estrogen dominance. And we know that unopposed estrogen in the female body has a tendency to do a couple of things. One is it becomes thyroid suppressive, so it's going to alter metabolic function by disrupting how much oxygen can get into the cells of your body, because that's what the thyroid is really doing, is driving oxygen and respiration of cells into the mitochondria but with the so as they as they go through this first shift what's going what's happening is not only is their metabolic rate lowering but they're also this because estrogen and progesterone work in the sensitivity of insulin and we know now very clearly that most people, certainly in this country, are insulin resistance resistant, and and this this balance of these two hormones promotes insulin resistance further, and and it also drives cortisol levels up, which is going be, is another storage hormone that's going to prevent belly fat from being burned and whatnot. So, when we look at the picture now, we can see that there needs to be something for these particular women that addresses this because these are the ones and, and you probably have heard of them too Sean where they they see all of these other you know, miraculous type of uh, success stories out there but they find for themselves that you know I'm doing the same thing that I see these other keto people doing or whatnot, and you know I might have lost 2 pounds in 30 days where somebody else has lost 20 pounds and it's because without correcting this hormonal imbalance first, you're going to have an issue with that. All right, now, so to get into what you were saying of how you... got Anyway, so to get into, like, how you address this, I am not a big fan of any of the synthetic prescribed hormones out there today, and we know that these increase the risk of certain types of cancers and um, and growth factors and things like that. So I do believe that if, if a woman in her particular case needs to address this, we would want to use either something like bioidentical hormone, which um, is going to be so similar to what her ovaries already produce that her body recognizes it as its own. Uh, sometimes we can do that without even using hormones at all by Precursors to hormones that will drive this and make it in better balance. So there's a lot of options for women out there to try to correct some of what's going on with them, you know, with, with hormonal chemistry that allows them to get some of the similar results of, you know, the people that you work with who drop weight rapidly, but they're not getting those same results without doing some work along with that. Is the way that
1: I see. It. Do you, I mean, again, this this sort of central um, uh, recurrent theme that we keep seeing with a lot of these diseases, you know, insulin being a you know insulin resistance, hyperinsulinemia, insulin dysregulation, whatever you want to call it, seems to be, you know, a very recurrent player in all these types of situations. And do you think there's situations where women that You know, I've seen women that go that alter their diet, you know, whether it's low carb, carnivore, keto, whatever, that will say that their their perimenopause samples get exceedingly better. You know, hot flashes go away, their mood gets better, their sleep gets better just by uh, altering diet. You know, and then obviously, you know, I'm a proponent, you know, you should do some exercise, hopefully resistive exercise, obviously get your sleep in line. Can that be enough? Are there women out there where that's all they need and they don't need to mess with hormones? Do Do you think that's true or do you think all women that are going through menopause? The hormone shift shifts in a way where, where they they pretty much are necessitated. That they need to be on hormone replacement.
2: Well, I think um, I think the truth of that matter is individual. And and what I like about what I'm seeing, and certainly why I'm a big fan of yours, is that is that if, if a woman is has not for for either hereditarily or genetically um, put herself in a position where she's an extreme case, then absolutely, I think that the increase in the quality of protein in the diet and certainly the more fat in the diet, which gets converted into pregnenolone, then progesterone, and then uh, the other steroid hormones or whatnot, that absolutely, uh, I agree with you. 90% of the women that I see, they can be diligent about these dietary changes and really follow uh, what I think that we believe in, uh, it makes a profound change in, in probably all that they do need.
0: So do you think that's primarily just the, like the insulin resistance versus the, uh, the, like the insulin sensitivity piece of the puzzle that is, um, making a big difference? Like, do you have, uh, anything that you can share, like that shows, like, Um, This is what's happening when when these women are very insulin sensitive versus very insulin resistance Kind of given the same type of protocol getting into that menopausal stage
2: Well if I'm hearing you correctly, I think what I would say is that the prevalence of insulin resistance and especially the accentuation of that because of the perimenopausal shift leads to uh, you know leads to these women needing this even more to go on a diet that's got a substantial amount of fat. And I think one of the problems that we see in the in, with the women population of, of even ones that are interested in this type of diet is they have a tendency to shy away um, even when they're trying to do low carb, they make choices like they're, they're, they're still a little scared of fat and they have a tendency to choose things like poultry over red meat, rum and stuff. And, and this is where there's a problem, because they would do so much better if they could make that last chip and move into a diet that would be full fat, mainly red meat, mainly rum sourced, uh, to provide... To provide those building blocks to be able to manufacture the hormones that they need, but this is the education that I think that we need to put out there women because a lot of them again. And Sean, you might notice too is that they have a tendency when you try to get them on more of a let's say a, the carnivore diet or even just you know extremely low carb is that their choices of eating things like you know poultry that has way much more omega six in it. Than something like a piece of lamb or steak does and that's that's part of why
0: they don't get as good result that that was going to be my next question too and you kind of started to answer it and it's like because one of the things that i hear the most um you know whether it's within the context of uh, low carb and endurance sport or sport in general or just low carb lifestyle is like oh well that diet works great for men but it doesn't work good for women or men do much better on low carb women can't do low carb as easily and i always found thought, found that kind of uh suspicious just because when you think of like you know women have a capacity to carry a child so like for them to be able to metabolize fat is like so much more important i think than it would be for a man who's never going to have to grow a child inside of them um And I was, you know, I've always kind of thought about that. Is it like, is it a cultural thing more so than like a biological thing where like our culture has always kind of promoted weight loss for women, low fat for women, and kind of really targeted that group in terms of body, uh, body image. And, you know, so you have a lot more scenarios of these like kind of psychological issues going on where they got this, this kind of phobia of fat, whereas, You know, you you, you grab a guy off the street and say, hey, eat eggs and bacon for breakfast and steak for dinner. And they're like, I'm on board.
2: (laughs) Right. Right. So anyway, so what what I would say to that is um, two things. One is I think women have a propensity to have more of elevated cortisol levels than men do um and and that's a driving force that needs to be addressed but i think i agree with you also and I, and I will go back to what i said earlier is i think that a lot of people do not understand the the biochemistry of the low carb or carnivore or any of this stuff in that it makes a difference of uh the the ratio of the omega-6 fatty acids that you're consuming in your body i mean we know that they're, it, highly inflammatory, and so if you don't try to correct that somewhat, and you can do that best, and Sean knows this probably better than anybody, you can do that best by choosing the predominant protein source that you eat in your diet is ruminant food. Um, And again, I think, you know, we have to say this again, is that women have this tendency to think that, okay, I'll try this diet, but their go-to tends to be something like chicken, and um that's not to say there's anything wrong with eating chicken that can that can fit into the diet but when it becomes your choice you know twice a day six days a week over something like a piece of ribeye or lamb or venison or something like that there's a big difference there and i think that we we need to we need to like really let these people know that hey if you're going to do this and you do it the right way and you want to get the results that um
1: yeah, you, know, you really need to go for the red meat. Okay. Yeah, let me just put a few comments in there, Dave, uh, if you don't mind. So you know, and that that has been my observation. You know, now looking at thousands of people that have done this, you know, generally most people that are successful and do it for a long period of time, they tend to gravitate for the so-called you know ruminant animals, like you described, right. Which for those people who don't know what a ruminant is, it's it's a it's, it's an animal that has multi-chambered stomach, like cows, like sheep, like you know some of the some of the game animals we eat. and So those animals you know, as opposed to like a pig, which would be pork or a chicken, obviously pigs are monogastric animals like human beings and dogs right. are. So there's a difference in their physiology and the difference in the quality of their meat. And you're absolutely right. There is a significantly okay. amount, higher amount of omega-6 in, in things like pork and chicken as compared to red meat, even whether it's grass-fed or grain-finished, doesn't really matter in that regard. The, the, the chicken and the Pork are gonna right. be much high, much higher in the omega. But and again, that even pales in comparison to the omega-6 we find in the processed food, which is endemic and everywhere and horrible for us. We had Tucker uh, Goodrich on back, I think, on episode six or so. We went in pretty good depth on on the problem the, the perils of omega-6. And I think that's something that's really underappreciated. And I think more and more people are starting to appreciate, but that is probably as much as anything been a disaster for human health and you know we we've only been eating these these sort of seed oils since about 19 you know late 1800s early 1900s so it's pretty new to the human human diet um let me ask you well and another thing you know it's you know women have been conditioned to eat lean meat and chicken and and, you know so a lot of them have just just a hard time dealing with that and in my view if you can't easily digest you know, you know, red meat, then then there's something physically wrong with you. Right. I mean, I'm not saying I'm not saying that in a facetious fashion, but I'm just saying that, that I think humans are designed to do that. And a healthy human being should be able to do that well. And so if you're not doing it, there's something wrong with your digestion or something, something there. But let's go back to this. So you got let's say you got a 47 year old female that comes in. She's perimenopausal. She's having hot flashes. She's got this dysmenorrhea. You know, she's starting to lose her period. Um, she's been eating, you know, kind of a normal diet you know how do you work that patient up i mean is the first thing you do is say let's get your hormones and put you on hormone replacement or do you say you know i, I have my impression of what i think you're going to say what i would say if i were in that situation particularly regarding men I, I, you know i, I think there's a, a, a process of you know let's see what your levels are and then and then let's see what we can do diet exercise so on and so forth and, and then if we need to but let me hear from you and see what your what your workup is, is there something special and then talk about the role of testosterone in women because it's always talked about in the context of men uh you know it's it's debatable there's a lot of people that uh you know it's pretty it's pretty common testosterone replacement i mean i don't do that i've been certainly accused of that i've been accused a whole bunch of things but i feel that if your diet and you exercise correct and you get enough recovery in most men you probably don't need to be on it uh you know but obviously there's exceptions to everything but can you talk about those topics a little bit
2: yeah sure um Okay, let's go to the the first one. My, you know, a workup with a woman. I, I you know, I look at it just like you said, Sean, and I'm, I'm first looking at um, the 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 source of of, of, the, of the quality of the choices that they're making in their diet, and I'm also looking at digestibility and assimilation. And one of the things that I find about that, which is very interesting, is that. People need to pay attention to the fact that in a perfect world, yeah, you, you know, everybody would be able to digest uh, ruminant food completely, and 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 probably by eating it repeatedly and getting the shit out of their diet with the carbs, um, that will correct itself. But sometimes in the beginning, what will happen is that when somebody's under a lot of stress and they're and certainly they're choosing poor sources of protein again, poultry, I, I would put that up there. Is that it has a tendency to disrupt the the, uh, the upper digestive chambers production of things like hydrochloric acid and pepsin, and women have a tendency because of the fact of the, the again the choices of the proteins that they choose that that are not they're not as uh, abundant in things like vitamin B12 as if they were eating a primary ruminant based diet, right? So. And then when that happens, since B12 is involved in the production of hydrochloric acid, there becomes this vicious cycle where they they get to an age, let's say they're 47, like you said, they're already becoming a little bit hypochlorhydric. They're not producing as much stomach acid as they used to in their 30s. Then they're stressed out. They're utilizing B12 very quickly in their bodies. They're not eating very much of a good source of it because they're eating mainly lean white meat. Um, and so this whole cycle a lot of times needs to be supported. Um, so I might use something like HCL and pepsin, um, as something to help them for a while as they make these dietary changes to get that straightened out. And it makes a lot of difference for a lot, for a lot of them as a lot of where, where they're bloating and, um, gastrointestinal stress comes from is because they, again, they're inefficient and in, in these things that could be corrected probably completely by diet, but it's going to take some time, and sometimes there's some things we can do in the beginning to make make that easier. Um, Testosterone, another interesting one is a lot of women do not think uh, about this hormone that they need as much as men. Um, I am in agreement with you. I think that testosterone is something that uh, in very, very few cases would I ever – want somebody to actually be on testosterone because you're overriding a pathway that your body should be able to correct itself. Now there might be an opportunity to use a precursor there. If they can't get there in their diet quick enough, you could use something like DHEA as a supplement to, to let your body produce more of its own testosterone at the rate that it wants to, as opposed to supplementally something that could be, um, yeah, you know, deleterious to your bones and your and and, and other things like that. But um, again, I my ultimate goal, and I think that you agree with this, is that this can be done mainly with diet. However, where I find my challenge is on a daily basis is that I'm not um, I'm not working with people that are ready all the time to go full-blown uh let, let's just get it right you know let's just go out and eat ribeyes every day every day you know which would probably solve this problem but they're not there yet and so we've got to use tools to try to get them you know balanced out until they get to that spot where we're all going to be eating the same diet right
1: yeah, and it's kind of funny because and a lot of women, you know particularly as they get menopause and they notice that they're putting on more weight and it's harder for them to do what they want to do. The natural reaction is they you know a lot of them get freaked out, and so they start eating salad and they go low fat and they starve exactly. themselves, and they exercise like crazy, and it only just runs them down even further. And so so it's kind of uh, you know, they, they sort of compound the problem and then and then they spend two or three years just in misery you know, and complaining about why they can't lose weight, and and, and really, I mean, it, they beat themselves up, and I think it's something that, uh, y- you know, I, I just see it as almost insanity, and I, I'm glad I'm not a woman that has to go through that, but I, at the same time, I have a lot of either sympathy or empathy, depending on how you're supposed to use those words. I can never remember the difference. Right, right, right. <laughs> no, if you're, saying, if you're
2: exactly right. I get it every single day. I get women who began to get this concept, and they're starting to move there in their mind, but they still will start off the conversation with, uh, you know, I don't work out like I used to, I used to, I, you know, I need to, I need to really get back in and push it in the gym, well, you know, we know that, we know the benefits of exercise, and certainly, uh, and the strength training, but for, they, they still can't make that last connection, and this doesn't have to do with, with exercise with, with the, the, the chemistry that they need to change internally can be accentuated by, by exercise, but in no way, um, th- that's not what makes people lose weight. You know, 90% of w- of, of whether or not you're going to change your metabolic health is going to be what you put in your damn mouth. Right. And, um, so again, you know, th- this is the, the mission that we are all on. And, um, you know, I love this shit. You know, I love that, I love I love reading about how much you're – I love the abuse that you get, John, because it, I mean, it is, it is amazing that people are out there still believing shit like um, that, that we're doing something wrong with the planet if you eat meat in your diet. Not thinking about what you do to the planet every time you plow another acre of land to produce some kind of garbage that wrecks your intestinal tract, right? I mean,
1: it's unbelievable. I'm glad someone likes all the crap out of you. <laughs> no, I mean, I certainly I certainly get it, you know, particularly, you know, from a from a group called The Vegans. But, you know, I, but I think the point you have is, you know, we, we sort of partition everything. We don't look at the big picture. And, you know, certainly animal agriculture has some impact on the climate. And, and you can argue about how much, you know, if we look at the U.S. state it's not very impressive, quite honestly. And we'll have some experts on that to talk about that, particularly all when right. it comes to greenhouse gas emissions, you know, other parts in the world, are, they're not as efficient, and that's more of an issue. But at the same time, we have to look at, you know, I mean, I know Peter Ballastet when he was on the show, we talked about, I think we talked about, it with him. I know I've talked about him with him before, you know, the healthcare industry by itself creates about 10% of the U.S. greenhouse gas emissions. So, you know, so like, you know, what if we make less sick people? Does that offset? And then, you know, not to mention the transportation and all the, all the food waste, which makes a ton of, you know, it has an impact on the environment as well. And and you know, when you go on this, you know, carnivorous diet, you're not you're not spending all day throwing fruit out and vegetables out that rotted. And you know, I mean, it's just there are a number of ways to look at this. And we and you know, when you re, when you go too reductionist and you say this is the only thing that matters, uh, it it really you know it really um, sort of is disingenuous. And I think it's something that uh, uh, is harming us more than anything. I mean, you know, again, not to belabor the point, but we've had ruminant animals in even greater numbers, in far greater numbers, perhaps, uh, going back even before humans were on the planet, and, you know, there was nothing going on there, and they were burping and and farting and eating tons of grass and creating methane, probably in larger degrees than what's what's out there now, Uh, and so it's it's just, I think it's a discussion we have to have, um, an educated discussion, because right now, you and I and Zach and everybody here, the most of what we've heard about animal agriculture has come from these vegan health propaganda documentaries i mean that's where the average person knows because that's the only people that are saying anything about it and so the the people that actually work the ranchers they don't actually get up there and they're they're not activists they don't have time for this stuff they're just they're just humble workers doing their job feeding you and i which we should thank these people prodigiously right. and not sit there and sit there and complain about them but you know but i think hopefully we can get to some of that message out there because it's got to be a balanced message people need to make a decision because right now it scares me as i'm seeing uh, you know, companies that are refusing to pay for their workers to eat to, to allow them to eat meat if they want to. There's you know, Richard Branson banning meat on Virgin Airlines. There's you know, the mayor of Minneapolis is now saying uh, we're going to go plant-based in our city. And you know, this is coming on repeatedly, 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 and that that to me, you know, that that's taking away freedom of choice from people, you know. And we can have a discussion on whether it's healthy or not. Obviously you I, Zach and many other people that, that probably listen to the show certainly believe that meat is a health food uh and so we've got to say if, if it is so then how do we make it sustainable and should we should we take that right from other people to have that you know should we tell our kids you're going to go to school and oh unfortunately the school district I live in has a vegetarian school is that is that a, is that an encroachment on our freedom and stuff and so I think it's more than just whose diet is the best I think this this goes to the very heart of you know you know, freedom of freedom, freedom to live, and freedom and pursuit of happiness. Quite honestly,
2: I, I totally agree with that, 100%. And then I would, I would, um, I will add to that that my passion is, is that the same people that we need to educate about what you're just saying, Sean, are the people that we need to educate of, of to get them to think about the fact that we live. Every organism lives within. It, it follows the same principle, and that is, based on an energy system. So, what what every organism is looking for is what is the biggest bang for the buck, right? So, so these people who do not get—I mean, the vegans. Let, let's talk about them for a minute, and bless their hearts. But the idea that they hey, believe—Hey,
1: hang on, I'm going to interrupt you, Jay, Jay, just for a second. Zach, when anyone's ever – where are you from, Dr. Wrigley?
2: I'm, from, I'm born here in Charlotte, North Carolina. Okay,
1: so when anyone from the South starts a sentence out with, bless your heart, it means they're going to kick their ass.
2: <laughs> right, right, yeah. yeah. Okay, so yeah. Go so ahead. So up for that. But so now I'm going to hammer that and go, if we look at – all right, we're an energy system that is looking for – we want to expend the least amount of energy in order for the biggest – amount of payoff this is what organisms do right and and so so it so when we look at the idea that you did one day live in a cave and you had to go out and forage your food that day and so the idea that you would have spent your time rummaging for for shit that didn't taste very good at all because Nobody eats salad unless they dump a bunch of dressing on it, right? So they're looking for the biggest – you grab your spear, right, and you're hoping that your hunt is successful that day. And it's the reason that we have the brain size, the way that we do now, and our nervous system is connected the way that it does now, is because the large, predominant amount of fat in our diet. So Every time I hear a vegan talking about, we ought to eat nothing but lettuce or something, and I'm thinking about – um how do you sustain a brain size as big as humans have on a diet that doesn't provide the phospholipids for the membranes that we need? And it, it, it gets crazy. And then you drive it into what you're saying about that it becomes something that are, if you're going to teach your children this. Um, and you, you put out a couple of things today or yesterday that just blew my mind about somebody deciding, was it somebody in Britain? That said, we will no longer ever serve meat at at our conventions or something like that. I'm like, this is um, yeah, that's abuse. I think it's kind of abusive.
0: Yeah, uh, I just want to circle back real quick. Um, When you described uh, just the you know the scenario of that, uh, I guess it's kind of a slippery slope um with with kind of the women first attempting like a keto diet or a high fat diet um and then kind of being more or less like 80 or 90% committed but having that last little thing where they're like ah I think I'll I'll do chicken instead of steak or um something like that we we actually had um we had a a, a guest on uh Kelly Williams Hogan I'm not sure if you're familiar with her story or not but Uh, she almost perfectly outlined what you said in terms of kind of the way she went through the process. And, um, you know, she got into it, you know, with uh, a lot of weight to lose uh, and eventually kind of got the right path uh, and then, you know, started kind of following a carnivorous type of approach um, with plenty of red meat and, uh, you know, essentially lost all the weight that she needed to lose and is kind of like on the right track now. And, um, so like folks, if you're interested in kind of hearing that out like definitely check that podcast out, but, um, you know, it's, it, it, it's very interesting, you know, how that kind of works its way through both the psychological side of things as well as kind of just how things are operating within your system too.
2: Well, yeah, I mean, I mean, let me, let me tell you something. This is anecdotal. Uh, I don't have the, you know, I don't have the chemistry set here yet on this, but I'll tell you something that's fascinating about my own experience is that in the in the i've, I've lost just about um, i'm almost at a hundred pounds from my heaviest now and one of the things that i have noticed i noticed through through that through that thing of doing that was um that there were periods of time where uh where my main focus of my protein choices shifted from one to another and here's what i what i found to be fascinating is that for myself anyway, was that the periods of time where I was predominantly eating something like chicken, my weight loss I, I won't say stopped, but it, it but it certainly slowed down immensely. During the periods of time where I focused on something like eating beef, I lost weight at a rapid, at a more rapid pace. And to throw the third one in there is what I found is that and I happen to be a lover of lamb, is that when there were periods of time where I would go for you know, weeks where lamb was the predominant protein choice that I chose. And during those periods of time, I lost weight faster than any other time. And again, I would love to be able to explain to myself and to everybody else why that why that would be. Maybe it's because the you know, lamb tends to be pasture raised all the time. Um, I don't know that it to be true because I don't know that it's that big I'll let Sean speak to this. I don't know if it's that big a concern whether cattle are um, you know completely grass fed or can have some grain and corn in their night or whatnot. But 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 that was an observation that I made for myself. And I think it's it's um I'm hoping there will you know some you know research so I would come out there to explain why it is that it's not just about going on a higher protein, lower carbohydrate, uh, or even carnivore diet. It's really, there are there are some advantages to the decisions that get you the choices of your protein and fat. And so, I don't know, Sean, do you have anything to say about that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I'll uh, you know I'll refer back to our our show with Ben Bickman we did a while back, which is a great show by the way. But we kind of touched a little bit on the role of carnitine in fatty acid fat, fatty acid oxidation, as you probably are familiar. Carnitine is heavily found in in ruminant animals and red meat, so I think that may be just one of the many uh, things that are that are beneficial. And I would agree that again, red meat tends to be more nutritious and than white meat. I mean, although there's, you know, there's certainly a lot of bodybuilders and stuff like that that go hypercaloric and, and find that they're able to do lean lean that way. And so I guess the question becomes, you know, do you eat a bunch of chicken breast and broccoli like a bodybuilder and spend most of your day, you know, hungry is what they end up doing. They're just very disciplined. They spend a lot of time hungry. I don't think that's a natural state. And then going back to the energetic requirements on hunting, you know, as humans evolved, we and again, we talked with Mickey Bendor about this topic, and I've read subsequent quite a bit about this stuff. And so... Uh, you know, it was very clear that as humans developed a sort of an energy gathering requirement, you know, how are they going to feed themselves? Where are they going to get the calories from? Hunting big, large, grazing animals that didn't run away. You know, elephants don't run away from you; they just turn and face. Became a very efficient strategy okay. for humans to 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 utilize. And going back even to Homo erectus, and so. That was much more efficient as compared to trying to gather up some some starchy tubers, which back in those days weren't very starchy anyway. So you had much less energy, or you know, if you're lucky enough and it's the right time of the year, you might be able to get some berries or even find some nuts. I mean, that was a very inefficient strategy. Leaves. I mean, I, I would argue that almost no prehistoric man would have eaten, spend much time eating leaves because they're all toxic, and the only vegetables that we have today are ones that have been systematically bred over you know, decades and and hundreds of years to make them palatable or edible. And so, um, you know, I think those things are in play.
0: Hey, folks. Human Performance Outlier podcast is very happy to announce that we have brought on ButcherBox as one of our sponsors. Uh, With ButcherBox, you can get some high-quality meat and cut out the middleman so that you save quite a bit on what would normally be the charge you'd get at the grocery store. Uh, with that, on your first order, if you use promo code HPO, you'll get 20% off plus free bacon. Sean, why don't you tell them about your experience with ButcherBox?
1: Yeah, I mean, I've used ButcherBox you know, for quite a while now. I've, I've gone through several of their, their uh, different boxes. And you know, for me, and, and by the way, that's a pretty good deal there uh, relative to some of the other stuff I've seen out there. But it has been uh, you know, very consistently good, a good product. You know, it's always been, you know, the, the quality of the meat's been very good. Uh, for you guys that are concerned about it, they are a 100% antibiotic, hormone-free product that is a grass-finished product. The meat comes out of Australia, uh, and it has a very uh, – I find, you know, because and I'll be honest, I, I, I prefer grain-fed beef in general, but I find that this particular uh, grass-finished product uh, tastes pretty solid. I mean, it's pretty good. You know, a lot of, a lot of the grass-finished meat can taste a little bit uh, almost gamey. Uh, And I don't find that to be the case uh, with with the ButcherBox product, and probably because of the like the time the animals spend on grass, and they get a little bit more marbling in there, and I think that helps. And so I've had a a very good experience with them, and I highly recommend them.
0: All right, folks, head over to ButcherBox.com and hit promo code HPO. Thank you, and back to the show. Just to change topics, what currently is pissing you off?
2: (laughs) Oh my god, let's see what's pissing me off today. God I think it's just it two things come to mind, Sean. One is the the, the lack of the medical establishment to realize that their whole model of health care is horrible. Of this disease management system that is not not about, you know, people, when people are not well, what, what is missing is wellness, right? And so to health in the individual, there's there's some guidelines that have to be established, and, and I think that we're falling upon those. And so to treat people without giving them the information of that most of them are dealing with some type of metabolic disease and it's, confused by the interference of a bunch of crap that they eat, um, that doesn't support the pathways to, to, to health and, and to look at treating those things with medications is just horrible. That pisses me off. And number two is that the, the people who use diet as some kind of ideology of, um, of, you know, it, to make some kind of political or spiritual stance on as we watch them fail. I mean, you, you I, I have watched what you've been going through lately, and I can't tell you the number, you know, and doing this for 24 years and the number of vegetarians or vegans that have come to see me with their, and again, I, I don't want to like hit them too hard, but but they do, they show up in their, their pasty, gray, weak, um, you know abused immune system state and and haven't figured out that that what they've been holding on to to make these dietary choices is at the peril of uh, of their of, of their life and their body and and so so thank God you know that we we' we're, we're there to a lot of them to coach them and get them to the point where um, that they see that <clears throat> that this was misguided, and and again, I just hope we can continue to do that because that's what's pissing me off is that the people that are that are hammering people like you and I, um, who don't really don't really have health as their main concern. There's no way they could be having these conversations and hatefulness towards us when uh, you know. We're seeking people's health and and betterment in life. we We watch these success stories. They're all over the place. when they make these changes, when they follow your guidelines, when they when they do the things that we ask them to to do and watch them get leaner, stronger, healthier, sleep better, have greater mental focus. this is the driving force of why we're passionate about what we do and to have somebody say, that we've got it all wrong and that we're hurting people is horrible i mean i mean just
1: enough is enough sometimes well yeah i mean I, I certainly agree i think there's a there's a discussion on you know how do we define health uh you know some people will say it's a it's a it's a total cholesterol below 200 and and and, and that's the whole paradigm and you know obviously there's a lot more to it and there's a lot of reasons why that doesn't work very well but so we've got this uh sort of Sort of mentality in the population that that you know you can't believe what you see. Sometimes you can look in the mirror and see you've gotten leaner, and your mental health is better, digestion is better. You feel the best you've felt in 20 years. You go to your doctor, and he says, "Oh no, your, you know, your cholesterol is 220, and your LDL is 148. We need to put you on a statin. Please change your diet." And no one sort of questions that. And the physicians, you know, and I don't want to put the the I don't want to push too hard on physicians because most sure. of them are just hardworking guys trying to do their job. And the system is really, it doesn't allow for. A lot of introspection and and critical thinking. It's just you know it's such a high volume system, and we've got a system designed to take care of a whole bunch of people, a whole bunch of six people in in what I would call a mediac a mediocre fashion. You know it's disease management, it's symptom management. It's here. What's a quick thing we can do? because they're they're overburdened or overwhelmed or overstressed. They don't have time and to spend there and 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 spend you know half an hour, forty five minutes an hour, sometimes it's over a period of months and months. To, to really get these people where they need to be is just not a luxury most physicians have. And the system, you know, again, there, it's a, it's a business right now. And then it's a high volume, high turnover, high production system where, where the money's being made. And I think, you know, again, you've got uh, the question is, well, what if we said, you know, and I talked to Zach a little bit of this offline. I said, what if we said, okay, we don't need the whole world to be eating processed food and garbage. And that's really, really bad for us. And we need to be eating, you know, you know, animal products and and you know, arguably fresh fruits and vegetables or or whatever you want to say it's 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 a, it's a not a, a, a garbage food which I think most people would agree. But what if we really try to implement that? How many companies would be put, would be put out of business? How many people would lose their jobs? You know, how much profit would be lost? And, and that's for some people is very uh, very tangible. And I think there's big companies that they're not interested in that. Quite frankly, they want to continue on the money train they're on where they continue to make more and more processed food, and we eat this stuff, and it's cheap, and it preserves well, and there's a good profit margin. And, you know, the people are eating, you know, food quality. I know this is, again, it's a little off topic, but I know I, I looked at somebody, I think Don Lehman wrote an article on, on, looking at agriculture production, and looking at, you know, you can make a lot of low-quality food via things like grains and crops and feed the people for less resources. The problem is, is just exactly that, that's low-quality food. Whereas if you want to use animal resources, you can make much higher quality food, you know, very, you know, extremely, but you're going to, you're going to have to spend more resources. And so the question is, do you feed a whole bunch of people, you know, cheap, low quality food so they don't starve to death, but their health is suboptimal? Or do you put the focus on better nutrition and then figure out, you know, how much of that, you know, how much of that production is worth the environmental impact? And I think that's a that's a big question we have facing us. And, you know, as the world grows in population, if we get up to 10 billion, we've got to, we've got to come to terms with this. And Part of that, a huge amount of that can be solved through production efficiency. And I know people hate to use the term factory farming or industrial farming, but there is something called there's an economy of scale. You know, if you and I, Jay, if you and I said, I'm going to go out and live in the woods and, and, and get a couple cattle and spend my life out, like, that's fine. But just be aware that you raising that cattle is going to take up way more resources it's going to be more expensive more inefficient uh, way to produce that cattle than you could if somebody else who has 100 1000 head of cattle did it and i mean it's just it's just the reality of, of what it takes to feed not millions but billions of people and so we have to we have to come to terms that there's a lot of people to feed it's not like you know we complain about factory cars you know we don't complain about factory clothing we don't complain about factory computers if we had to hand-make all those items, can you imagine what the world would be in if everybody had to hand-make a car? I mean, you know, no one would be driving cars. We couldn't right. have I mean, Arguably, that might be a good thing, you know, and I think there's... But, I mean, you know, you can just use this this sort of term, and, you know, we use this, this factory farming as a pejorative, but, you know, at the same time, what is a factory farm? People, people don't know. They think of something like, what's the health of cowspiracy, And they don't get out there and see what is really going on. And, and that's where I think the discussion needs to go, and we need to really understand... Uh, what that means before we hurl around those terms. Because, again, I'm trying to be as objective about this as, as I possibly can. And, you know, certainly, I, you know, I'm a, I'm a proponent of eating meat, and I like it, you know, and I'm, you know, I'm not funded by those guys. I certainly would be happy if I was because you know, life would be a little easier. But, but at the same time, I think, you know, we have to say, you know, have a real adult discussion here and say we still have to feed 10 billion people, and we can either feed them crap, you know, grain processed food, or we can feed them human food, which I think is meat. And then, if we're going to do that, how do we do that on a commercial scale? And, and do we use these production efficiencies that, you know, quite frankly, US, the U.S. health, the U.S. agriculture system has, has really done a good job? I mean, they've cut, they've dramatically cut down emissions via more efficient breeding of animals and, and the things they do to, to get more yield out of these animals. So I using a hell of a lot, you know, we use something like 40 or 30 percent less cattle today compared to what we use in 1970 to produce the same amount of meat which i think is extraordinary and that has a definite impact on on decreasing the environmental impact and so when you look at countries like china and india and brazil they're very inefficient these guys are these guys are polluting the atmosphere and so can we get those guys to adopt those standards and we have to argue about you know what's good for the animal and what's not but again it's not so subtle it's not so i mean it's not so black and white it's more subtle it's more nuanced we have to look at the whole picture you know is it water is it methane is it polluting the the fields with manure is it is it pesticide sprayed on the on the grounds you know that's and that's just on the animal side and then we have to compare it to what are the options you know what do the old pesticides look like again we're going to get some people on the show coming up they're going to address some of these points but i'm you know at least open-minded enough to say i don't know but i sure as heck i'm, I'm suspect I'm, I'm suspect about what's coming out of the mouth of these vegan activists these these these, these you know people for the ethical treatment of animals groups because I suspect they're willing to say things that aren't necessarily true. And in fact, I know they do, but you know, they are the, they are the largest loudspeaker right now. They are loud. They are yelling every day, all day long. They're funded, they're organized and their message is having an impact because the average guy on the street thinks that eating meat is bad for you. The average guy on the street thinks eating meat is destroying the planet. I don't think that's true. I'm not sure. I may be wrong, but I think we need to investigate that stuff.
2: Well, All right. So let me interject there for a second and say that um, I agree with everything that you said. And I think that another piece of this and that you would probably agree with is that is that the driving like, okay, so human beings are extremely innovative in solving problems. And and if we can get that, that here's here, here's my goal, Sean, would be that the 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 more that we all get the realization that at the heart of just about every bit of metabolic disorder or anything that a physician treats, whether it be cardiovascular disease, diabetes or Alzheimer's or anything else, is at the heart of this is an inflammatory process. And so what what I hear you saying is that the, the, I think that the big the big piece is, is to get these people to understand that, let's look at what drives inflammation in the body and what we're gonna find, and I think we're ahead of the curve, is it's not animal protein. It's the it's the overconsumption of plant-based material that, that irritates the lining of the digestive tract that sets off inflammation. And so what these vegans need to get is that they can fight all day long? They want to for uh, environmental, you know, health or whatnot. But they're dying from the same inflammatory diseases as everybody else. And until they get to the, we need to educate them about where inflammation is coming from. And you see this every day. I, I watch it when you, you know, get another testimonial from somebody who just gave up. Uh, eating plant food for three weeks and their psoriasis and eczema went away or whatnot. It's like, okay, so where's, what's the inflammation here? The inflammation is, um, it has something to do with something outside of eating animal protein and product for sure. And then, so, again, yeah, I guess where I'm going to circling back around to is that if we can educate enough people that we're dying from inflammatory disorders, where is that inflammation coming from? We will figure when we figure out that it's not from animal protein and ruminant food, then we can figure out a way to 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 feed the people on this planet. Um, and, and be able to, we, we humans can do that. We're we're good at that. We figure out how to do that, and uh, you know I'm encouraged by it. And I, and I love what you're doing, so I appreciate you.
1: Yeah, I mean I think you know we have a complicated problem with nutrition. It's it's, it's really tough. I mean, right, you know, my hats off. You know I criticize nutritional epidemiology all the time because oh, I just sure. think it's. I just think you cannot get the information you want to using those tools. And I think we, the fact that we continue to repeat, that, repeat them over and over again serves no purpose whatsoever. And so when I look at, you know, not that I'm an advocate that everybody does a carnivorous diet, but when I look at the people that do that, and I mean, then you have really no more variables, at least dietary. I mean, you, you've eliminated all these other confounders, and you very dramatically and quickly see that meat is not the bad guy. You know, right. like I said, there's something causing leading to inflammation There's something causing damage, which then turns to inflammation. It's not meat. And so what is it Well, if it's not meat, then it's something from a plant, whether it's rice right. sugar or vegetable oils or God forbid, you know, the oxalates and spinach or whatever. It doesn't. Right. It doesn't sort of, you know, you know, then you can kind of get to a point where you can say, I know it doesn't hurt me. Now I can kind of figure out what other foods I can add back in and see what doesn't hurt me as well. And I think there's a there's there's a lot there. And I think that, you know, A lot of it we're learning, you know, we're learning more about the gut and the microbiome and how its impact is on the whole body. And I do think there's some underlying inflammation. There's underlying, you know, maybe we call it leaky gut where, you know, increased intestinal permeability and those things all seem to play a role. Uh, You know, again, is it fiber? You know, we've we've all believed fiber was so good for us. But, you know, you look at it, it's it's like, you know, you you could just eat flavored cardboard with some vitamins in it and it would be the same thing, essentially. And, And so it's like, why do we think eating something that, to quote, Safety, who hadn't showed them why, why? Why eating something that's indigestible to put in the digestive digestive system makes sense? You know, you know, we just kind of bought off on that because some somebody observed Dr. Burkett saw some Africans that weren't too sick that ate a lot of it, and that and, that, and that's kind of gone from there. And then we've just kind of tried to justify it through various means. And that's I, I see that all the time. We just kind of justify behavior, and yeah, I mean, literally, I could if I thought if I had a, a sort of a a religious belief that I thought gasoline drinking gasoline was good for me. I could find I could find some some biochemical tests that would support that. I could say, look, if I pour ga- if I pour gasoline on these cancer cells, guess what? Those cancer cells don't uh, don't live very well. They they die. And I say, oh yeah, I'm drinking some. Yeah, I'm gonna drink a little gasoline every day because it has this anti anti cancer property. And that's where we we've, we've gotten to. We have this belief. We've already decided you know, eating all these fruits and vegetables must be good for us because our grandmother told us and we've got some crappy epidemiology that supports us. And therefore, let's look at these cell culture studies or rat studies or whatever and and parse out one little thing. And again, the human body is much more complicated. You know, it's more it's more complex. It's a system. And until we start to respect that and respect the fact that we don't really know diddly squat in the grand scheme of things. I mean, we were, it's like, we're putting a thousand piece puzzle together and we have eight pieces right now. I mean, that, that's right. literally where I think we're at. And so, but I think we're getting some trends and again, ultimately, uh, you know, and I know Jeff Bezos, the, the, the lead of Amazon, you know, he basically said, I trust the anecdotes more than I trust the, you know, the, the, the process and the theory, because he knows that the results are ultimately what counts. And when you have result after result, after result, after result of people going on an all meat diet, or close to an all meat diet, or whatever, and they come out and say, "I'm in the best health of my life." I, you know, this disease went away. Then you got to respect that. And, and you know, we may it may it may take us a hundred years to figure out why that's occurring. But you know, in the meantime, while we're waiting on the data, I mean, you know, people are, need to be able to say, "Look, I'm going to test it on myself." Because honestly, there has been zero diets. There is not a single diet that's ever been tested that ever has enough data where you can conclude that. And the only way you could do that. Would be to like take a thousand twins and lock them in a metabolic ward for their whole life and feed them exactly the way you want to feed them and, and control every other variable. That is the only way you could assuredly say this is the best diet for a large bunch of human beings. Until you can do that, you're really at your own mercy, and you have to see what works for you.
2: I totally agree. And again, you said so much there that um, you know it's it's unfortunate that we. It's just unfortunate to me that we live in a world that things need to be proven beyond the fact that if you take Sally Jones, for instance, who has got multiple issues and you put her through a protocol that you're running or whatnot, and she, uh, a month later, you know, has lost 12 pounds, is sleeping better than she ever has. Her joints don't hurt anymore. Her bloating's gone away, um, and her migraine headaches have left. Do you do do you need any more than that? And do you really have to battle the people that say, well, there's no science base around that? Um, You know, I've I've been dealing with this for 25 years and I guess you have, too. And I've gotten to the point, certainly in my career, where all I want to focus on is having that be the result for the people that I work with. I really don't care about having to explain that to somebody who says well there was no double blind study on what you did well no but ask her how you know ask her how much better she's doing I'm good with that um, and yeah this is the work that we're doing Right. We're not going to ever figure it all out biochemically. But again, what we're starting to piece together, Sean, is, uh, you know, when you're talking about that, we fi- you know, the, the whole, the whole fiber thing. You know, doesn't that somehow go back to the Ansel Keys thing? Because all we know about fiber is that somehow it does bind up a certain amount of cholesterol in your food and take it out through the other way. And now we're going, well, why would you want to do that? Why would you want Why would you want to get rid of the cholesterol? in your body through fiber, that seems like a a double poison because you want the cholesterol to be able to build your steroid hormones out of. And fiber is nothing but an irritant to the gut wall. Um, And I, you know, what interesting thing I would like to finish this up talking to you about my experience has been this. I haven't seen myself or anybody else that I've been coaching more towards the carnivore diet that has that that has any problem with constipation. I don't find there any, you know, removing all of the the plant-based food from their diet doesn't typically have some kind of, you know, effect on them becoming more constipated at all. Has that been your experience, too?
1: Yeah, I think certainly, you know, in the long term, you know, I think there's some people that, you know, when they first do it, they, you know, they they have a a dramatic reduction in stool output just because they're not wasting as much material. And so they kind of conflate that to constipation. But generally, you know, you're right that that constipation is is rarely, what I would call true constipation is rarely an issue. I think it happens occasionally. Uh, You know, we get a lot of people that try it that have severe gastrointestinal issues, severe IBS and other things like that. And so they have you know, a lot of issues that are going to take a while to resolve, you know, it's all this neuromuscular problems, you know, right. with, with problems with the GI motility and stuff like that. And so again, I think in, in those cases, you know, maybe, maybe not, but I mean, I think in the general population, particularly people that do it for any longer than a few weeks, they find most of them will say the digestion is the best it's ever felt in their entire life. And, you know, we look at the, you know, all we got to do is look at, I mean, we can look at animals. We can look at a cat, and a wolf, or a lion, and and they're not in there constipated constantly. So why do why don't they need fiber? I mean, they're still mammals, uh, and they, but then more importantly, you can you can look into the history, and you can look at these people, the Messiah, the Inuit. We always like to point to those guys, but right. th- they they weren't reportedly running around constipated all the time. And so, I mean, it's just common sense, and and you know, it's like we've been so conditioned to believe that. You know, we need to play, take this drug to be healthy. You know, we have, a, we have a, if you're sick, it's a drug deficiency syndrome. It's not, you know, you're eating the wrong crap. Or, right. You know, something like that. And so it's, it's just like, I mean, literally, I was talking, I was at a low-carb USA conference. I can't remember I was talking. I said, look at the sky. I pointed I to pointed the sky, and I said, hey, man, look, the sky is blue. And, you know, we could sit there and point to the sky and see it's blue, but you'd have somebody in the background saying, no, there's a study that says the sky is actually red. And, you know, you could sit there and say, look, it's blue, yeah. look, it's blue, look, it's blue. But there'll still right. be people insisting that it's red because they, they've got a study that says it's red. And I think that's the same thing with fiber. I mean, we've got people that are saying, look, I'm not having problems with digestion. I'm not eating fiber. And there's all these people out here saying, well, no, there's epidemiology studies that say you need it. No, we, we know that you have to have fiber for a healthy microbiome. And, and that's the latest sort of sort of. Last-ditch effort for the for the fiber people to say, you know, well, maybe it doesn't. Maybe cholesterol doesn't matter, and maybe the fact that the fact that it mitigates your blood glucose is isn't an issue because you're not eating glucose. And then now we've got, well, you got to have, you got to, you have to eat fiber so these special uh, fiber-loving bacteria will live there and, and give you fat, which you'd get anyway if you ate, uh, you know, a, an animal fat-based diet. So it's kind of right. comical and it's right. kind of circular logic. But again. The, the 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 entrenchment and the and the, the defenses are deep and they're they're dug in and it's going to take guys like you me and and all the other people out here that are saying let's just use common sense let's look at results and stop you know looking at only looking at uh, these you know these PubMed studies that may or may not have even been accurate or designed poorly or funded by who knows who let's look at what's actually happening to people and certainly on a large scale and, that, and that's one of the things I'm. I'm starting to do very aggressively is bringing all these stories together and, and, and not surprising to me to me, but surprising to many other people they're mounting up, they're mounting up heavily and, and, and pretty soon it's going to be undeniable.
0: Yeah. You so know, absolutely. one thing that I find interesting or more, more or less perplexing, I think is like when, when you said a while back, uh, Dr. Wrigley that like, you know that you like the odds when humans put their heads together and identify a problem and then work on solving it. We've got a pretty good, uh, you know, history of being able to kind of do that. And when I kind right. of look, when I look at the whole situation, it's like it's not that we're unable to solve a problem or we're unable to make something that's efficient and sustainable. It's that the waters have been kind of muddied so badly that we're we're looking at this thing from so many different lenses in that, oh, this is the problem. No, this is the problem. And oftentimes everyone's opinion of the problem are in such contradiction with one another we end up at a stalemate and then we can't even put our heads together to solve it. And, you know, the the thing that kinda resonated me with me a, a lot with uh, at low carb USA this year is uh, you know, Doctor Georgia Ede mentioned that, um, you know, she did a presentation and kind of touched on the carnivore diet and Uh, where she thought that was heading and where its role was and she said like you know who knows if humans should eat just meat if all humans should eat just meat Um, what she did identify was that it might be one of the very best elimination diets you can do to identify what you need to start with and then you can bring back in stuff and experiment with it and see if it works you know, I think if we like start from a situation like that, we, we find ourselves in a position where we can identify the things that, as human beings, we truly do need for food, uh, and then by eliminating all that other stuff that we don't need, that is just waste. And you know, there's some things that are very obvious, like you know, like, like cereals, breakfast cereals, like you know, all this other like junk food, candy, and all that stuff. If we can, you know, clear a big enough path where we can start recognizing that and get rid of that waste. I think that equation towards sustainability becomes way more clear and able to be kind of solved as opposed to right now where, you know, there's just so many variables in the equation. We don't know where to put what and how to solve what. And it seems like you put out one fire and you cause another one. And it's just, um, you know, kind of a mess in that situation.
2: Yeah. I, and, and, um, Zach, I I totally agree with you. I would add to that, that I think the yeah, there's a there's a multifactorial way of what of how we need to get there, and part of that is the bigger picture of what you just said. Part of it is what Sean said about um, we're we're going to have to deal with. All right, let, let's let's start here. Is that, that we're going to deal with the conversation that that there are a lot of people that believe that if we were really nice human beings, we wouldn't kill animals, right? So there's there's that piece of the. Um, but I'm going to jump all the way to the other end of the spectrum of where I hang out. And that is, I think that as we start to understand that at the, at the root cause of most of the problems that we see today have something to do with a metabolic disorder of the overproduction of things like insulin. Because here's, here's, the, here's the bottom line, is what we're clearly seeing is that if you eat a diet, like whether it be the carnivore diet that Sean promotes and I'm moving in that direction too or whatnot, but if, if if we find out that what this is really all about is that the lower you keep your insulin levels, the better your health expression is and the reversal of inflammation and all kinds of stuff, then 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 that is the thing that science Needs to push and support is that we we no longer have to have these these philosophical conversations about um, you know about vegans and spirituality or whatnot. What we clearly see is that what is what what stimulates overproduction of insulin, and that's what you need to stay away from. And therefore, what foods can you eat? that best put you in a position for a metabolic advantage, that would be animal protein right now. And we look at it from that point of view rather than getting into the big religion debate. So, Mm
0: -hmm.
2: but it's gonna take place on all of those levels, obviously. And, um, you know, I mean, we've gotta do what we can do, right? And then I think that the best thing that we can do is to sit back and observe that, hey, this is what happens when somebody follows these guidelines for a short period of time wow they really make some remarkable improvements and let's 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 begin the debate of why that is okay is is it is it the removal of plant food is it the decrease in insulin is it um i would rather that that's a much more interesting conversation to me than oh we shouldn't kill animals kind of thing anyway i'll let you guys jump in on that
1: yeah i mean again there's i mean a lot of people that say they're you know there's there's it's kind of interesting even among the you know unfortunately i get sucked into this world not that i want to be but there's there are people that are vegan and there are people that are plant-based and people that are plant-based people are doing it for health reasons they're doing it as a diet whereas right. a vegans it's it's a you know it's a, a statement it's a belief that animals should not be harmed animals are equals to equal to human Again, we can debate the ethics of that or not. Their ethics are not my ethics, and you know I think we shouldn't be dictated as what our ethical beliefs should be. It's like being told what religion you need to be, and I think that's I think that's uh, profoundly disturbing that that people are wanting to go that way and even legislate stuff that way because I think it is, uh, you know, you know, again, an infringement on freedom of choice. Um, you know, I think that uh, one of the things that I have uh, you know trying to do you know what i'm trying to do i'm i'm out there saying you know let's just is meat bad or not and i think you know i have my i have what i think is going on and then if, if that's if that's the case if, if, if meat is actually something that's good and needs to be in the diet and helps people and, and certainly if it you know, can reverse disease which it appears to be doing then we need to figure out a way to 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 keep it there and then and we need to figure out you know what else can we do? Because right now the, the the sentiment is we just need to we need to reduce it. We need to get out of the diet. We need to throw the baby out with the bathwater. When instead, there is so much that can be done to to continue to further make it more efficient, more productive, less environmentally taxing. You know, there's, you know, if you're worried about methane, which I think again, there's some of me that says that maybe methane is overestimated. But even if you're worried about methane, there are, there are, there are supplements that the cattle can eat now that can almost completely eliminate their methane, you know, pr- you know, uh, production. You know, there's. Uh, so so these things are, are, are doable. I mean, these things are doable. It's just a matter of having the will there. And the only way the will is going to be there is if the people say it's there. And right now, you know, we, we're seeing, again, this sort of very well scripted, very well funded, very well organized message uh, that we need to go plant-based. And so I think all of our people, all the listeners out there, all the people that care about this stuff, you know, and it's not easy because I, I hear people, I say, you know, what if they legislate? You can't have meat. Well, I'm going to go live in the country and shoot my animals. I'm saying... That's nice to say, but that's not a reality. Not, not, not too many people are actually going to do that. You know, there's people that are like, they can take my cold. You know, it's like the same thing here with the gun folks. They can take my ribeye out of my cold hand, my cold dead hands. You know, but I'm like, well, they, you know, what if you can't afford to buy one? You know, what do they make it so damn expensive, Are they tax it, or it's fifty bucks a pound, or you know, they they ration it. I mean, how does that work? I and mean, you know, I think we have to sort of say, you know, what are we going to do now in 2018 to make sure that that's never even an issue? rather than waiting till 2030 when all of a sudden you know you've got all these carbon tax on meat and you've got all these you know sort of limited options to get that stuff and so I think we have to uh, not only from a health standpoint because you and I are you know in, in the in, the, in zacker in the health and fitness sort of community but we have to become advocates on all dimensions of this and and, and understand the environmental and the ethical impacts of that and, be, and better educate ourselves on that and that's one of the things that hopefully Zach and I will be able to do on the podcast is bring experts in from those different areas and, uh, and do that. But it's been a pleasure having you on there. Where can people find you? What else? was there anything else we need to know about you or no, or any, any parting last minute, uh, words of wisdom from, from the man, Dr. Wrigley? Uh,
2: uh, well, first of all, I just want to say thank you. Um, I've been, uh, I'm a big fan and, uh, I've, I've already pre-ordered your book, Sean. So forward <laughs> Thanks. To that. it's
1: going to um, give me motivation today, to finish it.
2: <laughs> it's easy to find on either Twitter or my, uh, my website is just uh, simply drwrigley.com. Um, I run, a, you know, run a private practice in Charlotte, but I also spend a lot of time traveling around speaking and that's my true passion. So I'm hoping to, to, to take that bigger. And, um, but anyway, thank you so much. And, um, it's, been great to get to meet you and Zach thank you too
0: yeah thanks a bunch for coming on it was it was our honor to have you on the show and uh, um, hopefully once we've been around for a while we can come around and have some of the uh, prior guests back on and it would be great to have you be one of those
2: All right, well great I appreciate it I'm big fans and uh, pushing people your way Sean
1: well I appreciate it well hopefully in, in the not too distant future we'll sit down and have a steak or something like that
0: man yeah All right.
2: All right,
0: right, right. take care. All right, take care. Hey, everyone. Sean and I are excited to announce that Human Performance Outliers podcast has partnered with Thrive Market. Thrive is an online grocery store that focuses on making high-quality grocery shopping easy. By going to thrivemarket.com backslash HPO and shopping, you not only support the HPO podcast, but will also receive 25 to 50% off traditional retail prices. On top of that, with every annual membership, Thrive will donate a free annual membership to low-income family, teacher, or veteran. If you don't make up your membership fee in savings, Thrive will refund your membership fee. The link can be found in the show notes. Thanks for your support. Hey folks, thanks again for tuning in to the Human Performance Outliers podcast. Just a couple quick notes before you leave. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can find us at HPO podcast at gmail.com that's hpo podcast at gmail.com. We're both also on social media. On Twitter, you can find me at ZBitter, that's at Z B I T T E R. And you can find Sean at S Baker M D, that's at S-B-A-K-E-R-M-D. We're both also on Instagram. Where you can find me at Zach Bitter. That's at Z A C H B I T T E R. And for Sean, it's at Sean Baker 1967. That's at S H A W N B A K E R 1967. Thanks again for tuning in to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers Podcast.